So, Packer asked me to talk tonight about the concept of surrender. He introduced that topic previously, and he even touched on the fact that surrender is paradoxically united with effort. The two cannot be separated. So, what we're going to do is spend the next half hour or so circling that and trying to pick it apart and then put it back together. Sound good? So, I'm going to start how every sermon starts in Genesis. Uh, with the first thing that ever happened, which is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Why am I starting there? Uh, One, because I'm not that original, and two... (laughs) And so on. So in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were put in the garden, they were created in a state of bliss of grace, and they were called to what? Labor. They were called to labor in their perfected state. It was not something divorced from their perfection. It was something that was supposed to be an expression of it. And it was supposed to flow from them to do what? Bring order and bliss to the rest of the world. And instead, what did they do? Immediately, they reached for the one thing that would wreck that. Does anyone know what an archetype is? So an archetype is what happens when you combine about a million different stories that humanity tells, and you smush them down, boil them down, and the residue, the thing that is common to all of them, the elements that are highest and most essential in all of those stories, those are archetypes. The ultimate archetype is Christ. Saints are archetypes. It's what happens when you put everything down into a nucleus. What's left? All right, you got got the point. So the point of that is that Adam and Eve are not simply historical figures. They're archetypes of us. And we are fragmentary little bits of their story. Why do I say that? Because we always in our lives, live out the story of the fall of Adam and Eve over and over and over. It's our daily experience. We're born under their sin. We're born into their sin. We have what's called concupiscence, which is a fancy word I learned when I came into the Catholic Church a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah, before that I was a Hindu. No. I was a Baptist. We have concupiscence. We have this predilection to sin. We are born into Adam and Eve. We are their archetype. We live on this side of the gap. We know that we are not what we should be. We know that we are called to more. We know that we have the potential and the crying out within the heart for eternity. And yet we are cursed to live on this rock and die. This truth captured the minds and the hearts of ancient Israel. This was their founding myth. I say myth not to say it's not true. I say myth because what a myth does is it anchors you in the past and it points you into the future. It's not just an historical event like the date of a battle. It's not a fact. It's a thing that drives you. The ancient Israelites lived in the shadow of the myth of Adam and Eve. 
But that wasn't the only thing that captured and filled their minds. I'm going to walk you briefly through salvation history. We're going to pass through the fall, Cain and Abel, Noah, flood, restoration of the world, Noah's fall into drunkenness in his tent, the shaming of him by his own son, the further tumble and tumble down from that starting state of grace until Abraham. He seems like an upward trajectory. Maybe Abraham is the one that was prophesied as early as Genesis 3 that would put it all back together again. Maybe he would be the one. And then he wasn't. And then after him, who do we have? Moses. Maybe he was the one. And then he wasn't. And after that, who do we have? Joshua. Who do we have? David. Solomon. Elijah. Prophets. Exile. No one could ever successfully put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We were always torn into the gap of reality. And what do I mean by that? It's not just a highfalutin word. I mean, the gap of reality is that space between where we are and what we know we're called to be. And a way that that manifests for many of us is the paradox between surrender and effort. How many of you know a really, really high-achieving, just super stud, male or female, doesn't matter, whatever, uh, brother or sister who's just got it? Anyone? There's something almost mythic about that person, right? There's something kind of maybe primal, maybe elemental, archetypal even. There's something about that person that seems better than, more than. That person tends to live on the side of control. What is that person really bad at? Being bad at stuff. If that person is ever broken, watch out. Because they don't know how to handle it. They have all the potential, all the control, none of the surrender. Let's reverse it. How many of you know just the nicest guy? The nicest girl? So kind, so sweet, just kind of a lump. (laughs) Not a lot going on. But they are deeply surrendered. (laughs) Their weakness has taught them the lesson of surrender, but what did they lack? Some call it actualization, some call it effort, some call it overcoming, perseverance. They're not formed, they're they're just there. The Old Testament is a series of stories of Israel trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing to somehow put those two things together. Every time humanity falls another peg down the ladder. Exile. We are all exiled. We are all Israel taken from the promised land, into exile. We are all Adam and Eve, cursed, cast out of the garden. We are all Moses, 
delivering the law and then failing to live up to it. We are all Joshua leading the people of Israel into the promised land and then failing to help, help them teach their children not to disobey the law. We are all David starting off well and praising God and then committing adultery and murder. We are all Solomon, blessed, and then taken away from that quick-heartedness to God by the very blessings he's given us. We are all Elijah, fiery with the zeal of God, killing the prophets of Baal, and then running into the desert. And eventually, like it or not, maybe sometime in your life, maybe at the moment of your death, we will all be the last king of Israel, hopelessly battling against the king of Babylon as he takes us out of Jerusalem into captivity. This is us. Okay, good. That's the Old Testament. Got it? And then all of a sudden, real big shift, which is real good news for us. From the minor to the major key, right? You know where I'm going with this. The gospel begins with, well not begins, but the life of Christ begins with his presentation in the temple. The offering of the firstborn to God. Maybe, maybe this time it'll be, it'll be the one. And then surprisingly, it is. Jesus successfully puts together the pieces of the puzzle for us, the surrender and the action. Let's go through a couple elements of his life. We're told that what was his first act of ministry? Was it doing a healing? Was it casting on a demon? No, it was being baptized. Not because he had sin to be washed away, but because... Everything must be fulfilled. And then what happened to him? He was driven out into the desert by the Spirit. That's a bit of a dirty trick. It wasn't Satan that drove him out to the desert. It was God himself driving God into the desert so that God could be tempted. That's kind of a weird thing. Why was that done? Was that story just unique to Christ? No, there was something archetypal about it. In that time in the desert, Jesus was walking through the salvation history of his own people. He was passing the tests that they had all failed. 40 days and 40 nights, what does that remind you of? Israel wandering for 40 years. Also the flood, 40 days, 40 nights of water. Seems like God really likes number 40. I'm not really sure why. Wherever Israel failed, Christ succeeded. So why is that not us? Where does that leave us? I'm going to zoom back a little bit to where Packer talked about uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which is a bit of a twister, so I'll try to I'll summarize that to uh, MTD. So what is MTD? MTD is a nasty condition. It makes you think that if you approach reality and God the right way, that you can just pull the lever, get whatever you want. Why is that dangerous? It's because so often it seems to work. Let's think about Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is all about what? Wisdom. How life is when life is good. 
when life works right. That's Proverbs. And that's kind of moralistic therapeutic deism. If you more or less do the right things, go to the right school, marry the right person, have the right kids, say the right prayers, you will probably have a good life as long as society is peaceful and there's no wars. But you will have missed the entire point. And so even though the book of Job is far more painful and far more uh, melancholic than Proverbs, it's actually more true to the starting ground of the Christian life. Because the book of Job is what happens when everything falls apart. When Proverbs fails, when moralistic therapeutic deism fails. And then how you respond is going to determine how the rest of your life plays out. Are you going to choose control without surrender, surrender without control? Or are you somehow going to choose both of them together? And if you are, how are you going to unite those things? Because remember, we live this side of the gap. Christ is punching through, but we are still called to follow, and we're not there yet. We live in the already but not yet. So how do we move from where we're at to where he is? Because he's on the other side of the gap. To him, there is no darkness anymore. Death has no hold over him anymore. He got there. We're trying to follow. How do we follow? Do we do it by effort? Do we do it by surrender? How do we do it at the same time? It's a paradox. We can't do both, right? Surely if I'm acting, I'm not surrendered. If I'm surrendered, I'm not acting. Let's get autobiographical for a moment. I grew up Baptist. Uh, does anyone know what Calvinism is? Okay. Calvinism is the idea, in a nutshell, that if I'm acting, God is not. And if God is acting, I am not. How did we get there? I'm going to do real broad brushstrokes. Protestant Reformation could also be called the Protestant Revolution. It challenged the church's teaching that nature and grace could be like this. It ripped them apart. And super broadly, Calvin chose law and sovereignty. Luther chose grace and free will. Oversimplification don't go, to this, to, don't go with this model to any scholarly Protestant. They'll rip it apart. But in the broad strokes, Calvin chose law. He was a lawyer. Makes sense. What was Calvinism's big thing? You are utterly unable, utterly unable to choose God. Not just in action, but in desire. You can't even want to choose God. If the Spirit comes into your life, it's because he pushed you out of your own driver's seat. Now, most Calvinists um, come to a, a point of compromise to make this work because you can't really, put that way, you can't really live in this. It doesn't work in your mind that way. You have to compartmentalize it because we all know, or at least we all act as if we have free will. To do otherwise is to go insane, basically. But the, the theoretical model still stands. Let's zoom forward a little bit. Does anyone know what the Enlightenment is? The Enlightenment is when rationalistic humanism broke through into the West and replaced Christianity and the idea of the mythic, remember myth, it's this orienting cosmic structure, this archetype, replaced that idea with facts and science and logic. Problem, 
It has nothing to say about why the heck we're doing anything. If it succeeds, it does so in this plane. It has nothing to do with this plane. The Enlightenment and the Protestant Revolution are in the same line. If Christianity is a story of Christ teaching us how to put together that which has been shattered in the Old Testament, the last 500 years have been the slow ripping of it back apart. And I say all this not just to show off or to bore you, but because I want us to know exactly where we are right now, having been shaped by the culture around us, and where we are trying to aim to, and how much rebuilding of the foundation of our minds we have to do to get there. We are born into an era of two things which are taught to people simultaneously and never brought together and you're never allowed to question one when you're discussing the other. One is that you are totally free and can do whatever you want. The other is that there's no God and when you die you rot. And it's all matter all the way down. There's no spirit, it's only now. And the other one is essentially who cares about the material world? Do whatever the heck you want because you are God. So simultaneously, you are told, I am God, and there is no God. That's where we are. We are being ripped apart. The gap has widened. It's possibly wider now than it has ever been. But most people still don't live like that. How can we? It doesn't work. We all know what it's like intuitively to express effort towards something and yet to surrender to the process of it at the same time. How many of you have gotten good at a sport? Did you do it by surrendering and sitting there and let the sport come to you and change you from the inside out? Hope not. Did you do it by knuckling down and brute forcing it until you just got it right, always super tense? No. Does anyone know what a flow state is? It's when somehow your brain is able to transcend the paradox of effort and surrender at the same time. We've all done it. We know what this is. We've lived it in bits and pieces. We live in the gap of a culture that denies the possibility of it, and yet we've all experienced it. So where does that leave us? How do we possibly put this scramble back together again? What kind of things do we use to reorient so that we can move into the gap that Christ has opened through the wall of reality. I'd like to read to you from the book of Romans, because it's with this swirl of chaotic thought, this tension, this almost terror, that Paul writes Romans 6. Through eight. I'm going to start reading, see how far I get. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Pause. Why baptism? Why is baptism the key to this? If you were to describe what baptism is to someone who had never been baptized, had no concept of Christianity, had no idea what it was all about, 
it would go something like this. Hey, do you want to join my club? Sure, what is it? Well, it's called Christianity. Okay, how do I get in? Well, I have to drown you. Not a lot of takers. So why this? Baptism combines in a, a picture, if you will, an archetype, how reality operates as surrender and action. I remember my baptism. I was 17. That gift of memory was given to me in a way that if you're a cradle Catholic, it was not given to you. On the other hand, you have 17 more years of grace in your hearts than I do. So it evens out. <laughs> That act for me, and for you, by the way, that act for me, I'm going to use my story because I know it best, was simultaneously a surrender and an action. It was, it was simultaneously a dying and a raising. So Paul starts with this. This is our initiation into the life of grace. This is the picture of reality that we enter through in order to pass into what lies beyond. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Pause. Why crucifixion? We simply presuppose it. We know it has a, a compelling resonance. It horrified the Romans and the Jews in the first centuries. It had a weight of shock and revulsion. It was the worst torture possibly undergone by anybody. It's worse than if we had images of a man dying in the electric chair at the front of every church. How could this act possibly be the thing which catapults us through the gap. And how is it that dying once, death no longer has dominion over him? Some of us might have heard stories, medical miracles of people who came back to life, like Lazarus would be one that comes to mind. But even in the modern era, people revive after being declared dead, happens occasionally, sometimes by prayer, sometimes by weird happenstance. Are those people immortal? I don't think so. Death still has claim over them. Everyone who is resurrected from the dead in the earthly sense, reviving after being dead for a few moments, their days are still numbered. Their body does not reverse aging. They don't get younger. So why did this happen to Christ? See it through the eyes of an outsider for a moment. You've been used to seeing this from the inside where you already are convinced by it. Look at it from the outside. Why this act? What does it do 
What does it symbolize? What is its archetypal significance? It's not simply the nature of the horrific death. Let me ask it a different way. What does it say about reality that the creator of it would voluntarily descend and enter our mortality? What does it say about the nature of God and us and the world that the thing that all of the Old Testament was leading to and highlighting in advance and all that we do in the aftermath and shadow of the cross, all of it hinges on this one moment. Why? I propose to you that it is because there is no possible greater story that can ever be told. We live in a world of narrative. We live in a world of myth. The scientific revolution, the enlightenment, have robbed us of the ability to remember that. We might intuit it, we might live it, just like we've all learned a sport, or we've all done our homework, or we've all gotten better at something in the physical, like we've all gone through the process of entering into reality in which you surrender a part of yourself, and yet participate in something higher, and change. We know what that's like. And yet we live in the world of the mental scramble where we can't justify it to ourselves anymore. I am proposing that we return to the world of myth. Not random myth, not made up. I'm proposing that we search for the greatest possible story. St. Paul himself takes this approach at one point in one of his writings. He says in Romans as well, earlier in the book, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was captivated by that story what I'm proposing is that story and myth are not things that we dribble onto the top of reality like uh, toppings on ice cream. What I'm saying is that living in a story is inseparable from what it means to be human. We all live in a story. Now, that when, I, when I say that, if you've been well-formed by scientific materialism, that's going to ricochet off and hit a BS filter. Because how could that possibly be true? Story is what we live in, sure, or what we add on to the real, thing, the real stuff of life, but the real stuff of life, surely, any scientist would say, is the here and now, the material. I'm proposing to you that they're wrong. And I'm not going to prove it, but I'm going to give you an interesting tidbit as to why that might be. It's impossible to live. It cannot be consistently lived out. Take away story, take away purpose, take away meaning from a human life, that person will die. Maybe not immediately physically, but they'll become suicidal. There's nothing to live for. What is the greatest story? What is the greatest myth? What is the greatest purpose? What is the greatest archetype that you can possibly tell? It is that the highest voluntarily sought the lowest so that the lowest might be united with the highest. That's it. That's, what, that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. Every sacrament, every worship song, every prayer time when you feel God move within you, it's just a whisper and an echo of that. 
If the sacraments do not move you to encounter with the living God, you have not understood what it means to surrender in the active sense. Simultaneously, if you think that all you have to do is pray quietly in your room by yourself and feel God move in your heart, then you have not surrendered your right to self-determination. You have not successfully joined the body in the collective sense. You, You have to have both. If someone tells you that the key to the victorious Christian life is limited to participation in the sacraments as external things that you do, you know that they have not understood the nature of reality. And if someone tells you that all that they really need to do is love God in their heart and then be a nice person, you know that they have not understood the call of reality to come and die. This is the paradox of what it means to live in the surrendered yet active life. That dying we live, falling we rise. I'm going to propose to you that reality has a cruciform shape. What do I I mean by that? I mean that we live in the plane of the horizontal. We live in the here and now, the temporary, the material. And we also have an intuition of the vertical, the eternal, the spiritual, the heavenly. The cross is the shape that unites them both. And at the center of the cross is what? Specifically what? His heart. Why? Happenstance? Chance? Lucky coincidence? It is because his beating heart, broken open, is the recreation of the world. His heart is eternally pierced, and his heart is eternally beating. His heavenly body does not have invisible scars. His heavenly body has open wounds. The key to understanding and living in the victorious Christian life is this. Move into the sacraments with expectation of encounter. If you sense that encounter pushing you deeper into the open wounds and the open side of Christ, then you are being drawn into his paradoxical, living, resurrected, dying mission. Dying we rise, drowning we breathe, and what is the highest mystery by which we participate in this life? This is the thing that drew me to the Catholic faith. This is why you got me. Someone say it. Yeah? Why? What is it about a sacrament, this archetypal, mysterious participation in reality? What is it about a sacrament that captured me? It's that it successfully puts together the need to participate and yet surrender. It wasn't just in here anymore. 
And yet it could never simply just be out there. It put the two finally together. That by recreating participation in the entombment, the destruction of the body of our Savior, we somehow become Him. And that the goal of the victorious Christian life is not simply to adore and then walk away and forget, but to become so much like Him that as real as the presence of Him is to us in the Eucharist, we are meant to be that real to the world around us. It doesn't stay in the building. If it does... Oh! We'll call it a symbolic act. If it stays in the building, then half of it has been lost. Sorry about the mic. (laughs) And so where does that leave us in Romans 6? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life. There it is. Baptism and Eucharist. That is your passport from death into life. Not because of the arbitrary act that contains invisible, intangible grace that you never interact with, but because those lead you into encounter and it grounds you and it pushes you through the gap to follow Christ. I'm going to close with Romans 8. After profound psychological and spiritual tension and angst, where does Paul conclude? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I was 12, I was tormented by incredible feelings of vague, undefinable guilt. I later came to understand that this was a symptom of OCD. But at the time, there was nothing that eased that guilt except repeating this verse over and over to myself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (sighs) for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the crucified king, has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. On the other side of the gap, the spirit walks with us leading us, teaching us the way that we should go. As we grow in maturity, the gap closes. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Skip a little bit. Last thing I'll say. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We are the first fruits of the other side of the gap. 
That is what active surrender pushes you into. Miss either one of those two halves and you will die. But let them pull you and you will mimic our crucified Lord. Thank you.